Well, this is the longest uh, golf course ever played in a major championship. The only way you're going to play well is if you hit bombs. And Brandel, I hit bombs. So, uh, oh. That's what I'm talking about. Hitting bombs. bombs. High, nasty, straight bombs. Over the past two years, you've likely heard plenty of talk about the distance debate. And for the most part, this is what it's about. A golfer hitting a ball in absurd distance, taking a line that no one even thought about taking before, and changing a golf course we thought we knew into something else entirely. Perhaps you hear that and you think, well, that's not the type of golf that I play. This doesn't apply to me. Well, guess what? That's part of the distance debate too. Because as much as we might agree that guys like Bryson DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson are hitting it farther than ever before, the game remains plenty challenging for the rest of us. And that leads to questions not only about whether a line needs to be drawn, but where precisely it should be drawn. So the distance debate is, in a word, complicated. Or I guess three words, really, really complicated. I'm Keely Levins, and this is Local Knowledge, where we take a deep dive into the most interesting stories in golf. Today, we're unpacking the complicated conversation around distance, about how it started, what the two sides of the argument are fighting for, and where this discussion is heading. Are the ruling bodies concerned enough about this issue that they're going to make it so equipment doesn't allow golfers to hit it as far? If professional athletes have developed a skill that makes them perform better, is it right for the governing bodies to make that skill obsolete? While the distance debate is one of the hottest conversations in golf for the past two years, it's actually one of the oldest debates in golf as well. We've had many distance discussions in our history. That's senior equipment editor Mike Stachura, who has written about this topic extensively for Golf Digest. Uh, you know, certainly with the Haskell ball in 1902 was, you know, this this great division where you had a, a rubber core golf ball as opposed to one that was filled with feathers or whatever the heck. Um, it, it did probably add 10 to 15 yards to drives at the time. And people were up in arms about, you know, this this is not good for the game. And other, and other people say it's great for the game because more people can enjoy it. From there, you have the debate over titanium drivers. As you can imagine, or maybe you were playing and you remember, moving from persimmons to steel to titanium resulted in big distance increases. It was about eight yards in one year. Add the solid core golf ball into the equation, and distance on the PGA Tour from 1995 to 2003 went up an average of 23.2 yards. The USGA and the RNA released a joint statement in 2002 that Mike says was basically a line in the sand, saying that distance is a problem and we're going to keep an eye on it. New equipment rules were made about how springy faces could be on drivers, how forgiving they could be on mishits, and how big the heads could be. And now here we are, 20 years later, and the governing bodies are again looking at distance. The current distance debate was really catalyzed by this joint distance project that was released on February 4th, 2020. If you're not familiar with the document, it's an absolute beast. You know, the USGA framed it as this distance insights research project. And the, the opening introductory statement to that completed research project is 16 pages. Then there's a conclusions paper on top of that that's another 102 pages. And then on top of all that, there's 57 separate supporting reports. So 
they're not going into this whole question sort of shooting wildly. They, they're trying to make the case that, hey, we've seriously researched this. When the project was released, tour players were asked about it, and Dustin Johnson hilariously said that he opened the email, saw how many pages it was, and quickly decided against reading it. It was just too long. I'm probably one of the few people who read all 57 of those reports. So what's in all these documents that sparked the current distance debate? Well, a whole lot of data, as you'd expect. The USGA and RNA spent two years on this project, talking to golfers, amateurs and professionals, golf course architects, manufacturers, people from all over the world who are involved in golf. The data looks at not just the last few years of distance trends, it goes back over 100 years, analyzing how far golfers hit the ball and how golf courses have reacted to that increase in driving distance. Here's Mike Davis, former CEO of the USGI, speaking during a Golf Channel interview on the day the Distance Insights project was released. As we looked at this, as the RNA and USGA feel, it, it, it's time to break the trend of having each generation think they should hit it further than the last generation. We don't think that's in the best interests of golf, as Martin said. And as we look at this, it's putting undue pressure on golf courses. And in some cases, for those playing the longest teeing grounds, it's changing the nature of how they play a golf course. So the USGA and RNA have done this massive study about how far people hit the ball and have said that the trend of hitting the ball further and further is worrisome. Remember, these are golf's governing bodies. So if they think the ball's going too far, they can decide to do something about it. That's where the debate gets heated, because on the other side is a group that doesn't think distance is really a problem. Let's dig into how these two sides of the debate think. The two sides of this current distance debate have the same general mentality that's existed since the first distance debates, back when golf balls filled with feathers went by the wayside and golfers started launching balls that had a rubber core. I think the, the argument is this. On, on one side, there is a fear that the game is being de-skilled de by advancements in, in equipment and historic golf courses are in danger of being obsolete. On the other hand, is innovation has always been a part of the game and it maintains enthusiasm for the game and the only ones endangering if that's a thing the game are a infinitesimally small percentage of elite male golfers that's the point the group on the side of letting innovation and progress happen freely hones in on a lot they believe the only people who are really hitting it way too far are guys on the PGA Tour. If you're looking at data that goes back several decades, like the USGA and RNA did, I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear that golfers are hitting it farther now than they were in the 1920s and the 1980s. But what's interesting is that while yes, there is an upward trend in driving distance across the elite amateur and professional gains, this trend is different for recreational golfers. What's lost in all of the, this discussion is the average golfer whose driving distance has not appreciably improved in 15 years, according to the USGA's own data and according to data from 20 million drives that the Arcos GPS sensor company has, has researched. 
you know, actually driving distance has gone down a little bit for average golfers. But average golfers aren't playing on TV. Meanwhile, the ones who are, guys like Bryson DeChambeau, are creating highlights like this. All right, back here at nine. Launch. Here we go. Wow, 192 mile an hour ball speed. That is high. That is enormous. Yes, it is. That's where he's aiming. And that's where he's headed, just a little bit right of it, but this ball appears to be hammered. <laughs> it's hard to talk about the distance debate without talking about DeChambeau. He's been open about his quest for more distance, putting on 30 pounds in one offseason to be able to hit it farther. In the 2018-2019 season, he averaged 302.5 yards, number 34 on tour. In the 2020-2021 season, he averaged 323.7 yards and ranked first. Since 2002, the PGA Tour's average driving distance has increased by 17 yards. On both the LPGA Tour and the Champions Tour, it's gone up by 8 yards. Last year, the average driving distance on the PGA Tour actually went down. But what has gone up is drives over 320 yards. In the last decade, the number of drives over 320 yards has gone from 1 in 20 to about 1 in 7. This trend speaks to what could happen in the future. How long is it going to be before 3 out of every 6 drives is over 320? What about 5 out of every 6? Hitting these monster drives comes with a price that just about every golfer can relate to. If you're hitting it as hard as you possibly can, you're going to miss the fairway. For example, while DeChambeau ranked number one in distance in 2021, he was ranked 178th in accuracy. The thinking there is, if you're strong enough to rip it 400 yards, which, by the way, he can, you're also probably strong enough to hit it out of thick rough. This has de-emphasized certain types of shot making that have been part of golf's history. In more ways than one, golf is prioritizing power over finesse. The statement most recently from from Mike Davis was where it's going is too far now. So they're and more scared of the future. I, I think they've always that's always been the ruling body's position is it's not a it's not a now issue. It's a where does it go from here issue. What they haven't been clear on is who they want to push it back for. This is a key part of the argument for people who don't want things changed. If the biggest distance gains are happening in pro golf, why should the average player have to suffer? This is a men's professional golf problem. And, and I think there's, there's no evidence that at any other level, the players are somehow affecting the, the venues. We are talking about less than one-tenth of one percent of the golfing world dictating what could be the rules for all of us. The obvious line of thinking that follows is, well, if it's only a few guys out of the millions of golfers in the world who are hitting it really far, then just change the rules for them. There's actually a word for that. It's called bifurcation, one of a few buzzwords you've probably heard in relation to the distance debate. Simply put, it means having a different set of rules for the pros than you do for the amateurs. This isn't a new idea when it comes to sports. The most obvious example is baseball, 
wooden bats in the pros, aluminum bats and everything from Little League to NCAAs. If you're thinking, oh, perfect, the USGA and RNA can just make a different set of rules for both groups. Debate over. Fixed. Moving on. <laughs> Not so fast. There's basically a whole separate debate about bifurcation. Some people think it's a smart, easy solution because it focuses the changes at the group that's pinpointed as needing changing. But one of the things that people love about golf, one of the things that really makes it special, is that you and me, us average golfers, we can play the same game as the pros. We can buy the same golf balls, the same clubs, and even play the same courses, if we can get on them. <laughs> And for what it's worth, the people who make and sell golf equipment know that we love this about the game as well. If you put in bifurcation, then that's gone. Here's Brandel Chambly on Golf Channel speaking when the report came out. You know, right now, if you want to, you can buy Tiger Woods' irons. Mm -hmm. uh, TaylorMade makes those irons, and they're for sale. They're expensive, but you can buy them. And a lot of people do buy them because they want to play the same club that Tiger Woods plays. Uh, this game has been that way a long, long time. Mm -hmm. You play golf forever, and you want to play the same game that professionals play, even though you don't necessarily have those skills, you want to play their equipment. If we want to restore the traditions of the game or keep them in check, that is certainly, along with playing the ball as it lies, mm -hmm. I think one of the fundamental great things about the game of golf. If you're not the romantic type and being able to play the same equipment as the pros doesn't matter to you, you might align with the other anti-bifurcation argument, the logistical nightmare bifurcation could produce. You've got guys who are amateurs playing in a college tournament one week, and then a few weeks later, they're teeing it up in a qualifier for the US Open. This player, in this imaginary bifurcated future that we're talking about here, would have to have pro-compliant clubs and balls for his qualifier, as opposed to his usual amateur-compliant clubs. How are you going to police that? Again, this is a small group. The guys who are trying to qualify for the US Open don't make up the majority of the golfing population. But no one wants some amateur's hopes of the US Open being dashed by some haphazard rules violation. Then there's also the argument that the professional game shouldn't be changed because figuring out a way to hit the ball far is a skill. Average swing speed is probably up two miles an hour in the last decade. Driving this average driving distance on the PGA Tour is probably up, you know, eight to nine yards in that same time span. Well, the majority of that eight or nine yard increase is an increase in swing speed. So, yes, improvements in technology are part of the reason why people are hitting the ball farther. But there's also the reality of players deciding to pursue distance as a way to improve their chances of being successful. On tour, the average launch angles have increased slightly, while average spin has decreased slightly. Together, that combination improves distance. Just by refining launch conditions, which is something players are able to do now because of the launch monitors they have, players have been able to add distance. And then, of course, there's improvements in strength and fitness. DeChambeau is the most obvious example, putting on weight in the pursuit of more strength to produce more clubhead speed, which produces more distance. But he's not the only one. Men and women have been figuring out ways to get more distance just through how they use their bodies. What happens to all of those players who've developed certain skill sets, not just in the last five years, but basically their entire competitive golfing life? They're, they're going to have to be able to 
sort of adapt on a dime. Maybe it's a big adjustment, maybe it's not, but is it is it fair to to that skill set to say that that doesn't matter anymore and, and you have to develop some new sort of skills or or lose lose the ability you had before. It's interesting to think about distance in these terms. An athlete looks at his or her sport, finds an area where they can improve, and then pursues it. More guys are dunking than ever in the NBA. Should they raise the hoop? Tennis players are serving faster than ever. Should they make the ball lighter? Like Mike said, this is messy. But honestly, from the looks of things, bifurcation isn't going to happen. Even at the latest juncture when, you know, former USGA CEO Mike Davis said, uh, we need to do something about distance. At the same time, he said, we still believe in one set of rules. Here's Martin Slumbers, chief executive of the RNA, who was part of that same Golf Channel interview back on February 4th, 2020. I think one of the great strengths of golf over nearly every other sport there is, is that we, we play we can play nearly on the same golf courses, whether you're the learning the game or the most talented in the game, and we play by the same set of rules. And we want to, we want to stay, stay with that, that as a principle. So if it sounds like bifurcation isn't on the table, the next logical solution, if you're in the camp that thinks that there is a problem that needs solving, is changing the rules for everyone. The way Mike describes it, the change could be something like changing the weight of the golf ball to make the ball go a certain percentage shorter than it goes now. The percentage loss would be similar. So if you say that Bryson hits at 350 and we're going to, you know, we're going to take 25 yards away from him. So we're going to take five to 7% away from him and you hit it 225 you're going to you're going to hit it 215 or something like that you know is is a loss of 10 to 12 yards great for you probably not if that's all that you're going to lose but the worse you hit it that's where the problem is you know your your bad tee shot at you know 185 yards now becomes 170 yards Jack Nicholas has talked about wanting a 20% decrease in distance. So that would change Bryson's average 323-yard drives to 259-yard drives. That's about the average driving distance on the LPGA Tour. Another way to get distance down, Mike explained, would be to change drivers. Making them heavier, for example, would make drives go shorter. It's natural to think about these changes in respect to your own game, but it's also important to think about these changes in regards to the whole golfing population. That's the other thing, right? So that Distance Insights report came out right before COVID shut down everything, and that kind of shut down a lot of the heat of the moment. And now they're sort of trying to, to sort of ramp this thing back up again after a two-year period when golf has exploded and popularity has soared and and now we're going to come in and save the day by making everybody not want to buy new equipment ever again. <laughs> That's another factor in this whole debate. If the rules were to change about drivers, for example, and drivers were going to be made to guarantee the ball will go shorter distance, do you think people would be running to stores to buy new clubs? 
What would that do to the equipment market? And then there's just that mental aspect too. If you're out there playing equipment that has been made to make the ball go shorter, how does that make you feel about your game? It's it's an interesting question to see how uh, how a single set of rules rollback impacts enthusiasm for the game. Enthusiasm for both your own personal game and that of the pro game. While there's enthusiasm for this new style of the game, there's also enthusiasm for the way the game used to be. When courses weren't stretched out to their absolute max yardage, when players had to hit long irons into greens. The USGA study found that in the 2000s, the average length of golf courses in the US was 6,645 yards, 150 courses were surveyed. In the 2010s, the average distance was 6,740 yards, 533 courses were surveyed. So their study found golf courses are getting longer. You know, one of the sort of stock answers from the ruling bodies is that golf courses have to make themselves bigger and longer and, and there's a water shortage problem and it's not environmentally sustainable to continue to make golf courses longer and longer and longer. I, I, I mean, I don't want to say that's a false argument because there are plenty of golf courses being renovated and adding new tees. I would say it is not by far the majority of golf courses that are adding hundreds and hundreds of yards. It just isn't happening. I mean, I, I, play, I play a municipal golf course in my town and the yardage has not changed it since they opened it in the 70s. And you cannot get a tee time on a Saturday from April until November. And nobody, none of the paying customers are, are walking away saying how boring it is because it's so easy to play this golf course. Uh, so it, it's, it is a problem for golf courses that want to host elite competitions. And those golf courses almost universally can pay for any change that they feel like they have to make. And if they can't make that change because they don't have real estate or whatever, then they just aren't going to be a host of an elite competition. The environmental argument is this. If golf courses are adding tees in response to people hitting the ball farther, then that means there's more water being used to keep that grass alive more gas being used to power the mower that mows the new tee box, more pesticides being used to keep weeds off that tee box. You get it, there's a ripple effect. Here's Mike Davis again from the Golf Channel interview. You can imagine, Gary, an existing shorter golf course that might wanna use reduced distance equipment so it can really be played the way the architect maybe years ago intended it to be played. But even looking into the future, we have a wonderful opportunity here to, to maybe look at something where you could have a smaller golf experience, uh, maybe on less acreage, maybe on an on a urban setting where you could imagine you know, a, a reduced distance golf ball or clubs that don't hit the ball as far, uh, allowing golfers to enjoy an experience that's less time, that costs less to, to maintain, costs less to play. And so this is, this is an opportunity and enjoyment for the future of the game. But, you know, I don't think the RNA and USGA are looking backwards. We're really forward looking and, and uh, this is a real opportunity we're excited about. 
playing golf courses the way that they were meant to be played is an important piece of the argument for those who favor scaling back distance. With the distance achievements of DeChambeau and others, drives are being taken over dog legs that architects couldn't have imagined possible. They're flying hazards that just weren't meant to be flown, and they're hitting shorter clubs into greens than anyone could have expected. With this comes the question, is this how the game is supposed to be played? What does this mean for records that have been set, for history that has been made at iconic courses? This conversation is, of course, happening during a year when the Open Championship is at St. Andrews. Just due to how the old course is positioned within the town, there are serious limits to how far the golf course can be stretched out, how much it can defend itself against players with extreme length. If the old course had been built at 7,500 yards, I wonder how, how much of a debate we would be having. St. Andrews isn't the only course that's been tested by recent gains in distance. I'm sure you remember the way DeChambeau talked about Augusta National, calling it a par 68 and describing the unorthodox lines he planned on taking off of tee boxes. He did, of course, finish T-34 that week. But more than that, stories like Hogan's one iron at Marion are not being created by this generation of golfers because guys are hitting eight irons or wedges into greens way more so than long irons. Distance is favored over accuracy, is the argument. The skills that made the great golfers of history successful don't apply in the same way to the pro game today. What does that mean for golf's connection to its history? What does that say about where the game is headed? Although the Distance Insights project was derailed briefly by the pandemic, the USGA and RNA have proven they're ready to take action. In October of 2021, golf's governing bodies announced a new model local rule that would reduce the maximum allowable driver length by two inches for the professional game. Instead of allowing 48-inch shafts, 46-inch shafts will now be the max. Right now, the plan is not to restrict driver length for recreational golfers. I know what you're thinking. Isn't this bifurcation? Not technically, because it's a model local rule. But it's an interesting concept because it allows for different rules for certain elite events without there actually being different rules for the amateur and professional games. Not a lot of players use a 48-inch driver. Bryson has, of course, tried everything, but he landed with a shaft under 46 inches, so he's not affected by this change. On the LPGA Tour, Brooke Henderson plays with a driver shaft longer than 46 inches. On the PGA Tour, Phil Mickelson plays with a shaft longer than 46 inches as well. He wasn't thrilled about the announcement and took to his Instagram to voice his opinion. What data was there to say that the driver length should be capped at 48 inches? What data is there that says it should go to 46 inches? We're addressing the wrong problem and we're misreading the data yet again. Along with this October announcement, the USGA and RNA said that they're looking at changes to the ball testing procedure and CT test, which, for the uninitiated, tests how springy a club face is. Mike believes that if an update comes, it could be about adding variety to how golf balls are tested. Right now, balls are tested in the same conditions every time. So a ball that passes that test could fail that same test under different conditions on the golf course. A change could be to test balls at multiple conditions, trying to find the conditions under which the ball goes the farthest. This could make golf balls that are legal right now, illegal. The USGA changes the way they test 
drivers and changes the way they test golf balls, that is without a doubt going to suddenly make certain clubs and certain balls non-conforming. That's at least on the table, that's the more likely scenario as opposed to, oh, we're going to all of a sudden say golf balls are going to be lighter or we're going to say all of a sudden drivers are going to be heavier. What's more likely to happen is we have these rules set in place for how we test equipment. We're going to change those rules. And that's, you know, that's the very nature of a rollback that that could make certain commonly used clubs and balls non-conforming. But that would be, that would be Armageddon. That would lead to very intense lawsuits. So what's next? Another model local rule? Changes to how balls and clubs are tested? Mike's ominous Armageddon? Or maybe no changes at all? That remains to be seen. In the meantime, all we can do is debate. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Two in the Back by Blue Dot Sessions. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insights into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to our Be Right podcast.